Well, before we get uh, before we get going here, I want to do a couple of things. The first is if you were if you were here in our service last week uh, during third service, I want to say thank you for uh, being being patient and helpful. Um, numerous people in this service engaged with a couple of medical situations we had going on, and so thank you very much for your willingness to do that. Um, thank you for bearing with us patiently while we worked our way through that last week. The second thing that I want to say is that if you are a second service transplant who is here in third service with us, yeah, there you are. I want to say thank you to you as well. Um, you will find that third service is the exact same as second service. You're just thinking about lunch more <laughs> and waiting for me to be done up here so that you can go eat. Um, but we want to thank you for that as well. And if you're, if you're pondering making a commitment to making third service uh, your service home, if you will, we're incredibly thankful for that. We're obviously with the holiday weekend, things are a little bit different around here. But last, last weekend was the highest uh, attendance we've ever had on a Sunday morning here at LCF, which is awesome. I mean, the Lord is doing some really cool stuff. Yeah, you can applaud that. The Lord is, is doing some really uh, amazing stuff here, and should he continue to bless us in that sort of way, we just want you guys to know, we sent the video out, that we're doing the work uh, on our end as a leadership team and a staff to try to figure out how do we best accommodate everyone that, um, that the Lord is moving in and, and that's attending here. And so uh, we're working on the short-term and the long-term picture of that, and if you will bear with us and be patient with us in the interim, uh, we, we greatly appreciate that. Sound good? Awesome. We're going we're gonna to dive into Psalm chapter 1 this morning. If you've got a Bible or you've got the Bible on your phone and you want to pull that out and open it up, uh, we encourage you to do that. I encourage you to do that. There's no one else up here. Um, if you've ever seen The Sound of Music, then you'll know what I'm talking about when I say that there's a scene where Maria, Julie Andrews, gathers up all of uh, the children there. And it's before that they've turned into uh, the great family band that they end up being, and she starts to teach them how to sing, and she says, let's start at the very beginning, right? Which is a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC. When you sing, you begin with Do Re Mi. Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. That's wonderful advice. We just didn't take it in this series. But there was a reason for that. There's a reason why we saved Psalm 1 for the very end of our series instead of beginning with it. And part of what I hope, uh, if you've been with us over the course of the summer, part of what I hope that you've noticed and seen and experienced is that a lot of what we've talked about in terms of worshipful responses to various seasons and, and circumstances in life, what we've seen is that a lot of those responses are completely unnatural. They don't just happen normally. Let me just recap some of what we've talked about over the last three months or so as we've worked our way through 10 or 11 of these psalms. We've talked about moving beyond questioning God during intense periods of suffering or grief or despair and instead coming to a place of deep faith and heart-filled worship. In the midst of the real trials and challenging circumstances of life, most of us don't think to ourselves you know what I should be doing in the midst of my hurt and in my pain? I should be worshiping. That's not a natural thought that occurs to us first. We've talked about continually recommitting ourselves to a life of praise in all situations. That was Psalm 145. Here's how that normally works. 
normally we get into, say, the really challenging moment in life, and we want God to fix it for us. And then when it resolves itself or whatever happens, then we offer some praises to the Lord. Then we forget about him and move on with the rest of life. And we wait to praise him again until we have another situation where we need something and he, and he fulfills it for us. And so we offer our praises sporadically based on when we think the Lord is suiting us the way that we want him to. A life of continual commitment to praising him isn't entirely natural. We've talked about intentionally examining and removing future barriers to the continued nearness of God. We talked about steadfastness and our confidence and focus in the Lord in the midst of uncertainty. We've talked about repenting of our sin and not just feeling bad for it or not just uh, being down because it's created pain in our life or in the lives of others, but to truly repent. That was Psalm 51. We talked about entrusting our future to the Lord instead of being anxious. Jim talked about that in Psalm 127. Last week, we talked about trusting and hoping in the Lord in the midst of unmet expectations. That was Psalm 23. None of those are natural responses. They certainly are worshipful responses, but they don't just flow out of the the human heart normally and naturally. That's part of what I'm hoping we've seen throughout our time in Psalms. Psalms is simultaneously challenging and comforting. The reason is because in Psalms, we see real-life people in real-life situations, experiencing real-life emotions, and yet worshiping in a way that looks totally not real life. It's comforting to read Psalms and see that here is David or, or one of the other psalmists experiencing something and having the emotions associated with it that I have too. My situation is not surprising to God. I'm not the first person to go through this. What I'm feeling is, isn't unique, but there's actually shared human experience there. That's all very comforting. What's incredibly challenging is to see what it looks like to walk through those feelings and experiences in a way that's constantly worshiping and looking to the Lord. That's challenging. That's what you get a picture of throughout the book of Psalms, all 150 of them. So what we're going to do this morning is actually kind of focus in what has been the primary question in this series. We've talked a lot about how do I worship when, fill in the blank. But the real question that we're going to ask as we wrap up this series is what do I worship when, fill in the blank. You see, we were all created with a desire to worship. It's hardwired into us uh, right from the beginning. And at the beginning, God created humanity to worship Him. Our worship is always supposed to be geared toward the Lord. What sin does is that it causes us to worship other things instead. We do what uh, is called creating an idol. It doesn't mean that we make a thing and then we bow down to it like a little tiki man or something like that. It means that we take an item out there in the world. That's a good thing. And we make it the thing central in our hearts. We turn it into an idol and we worship it. John Calvin says the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us is, from our mother's womb, expert in inventing idols. And then we become experts in worshiping them. Remember, we've said this probably... Ten times over the course of the summer that our definition of worship is responding to God for who he is, what he's done, what he is doing, and what he will do. And so I want to give you an example of what it looks like to worship an idol this morning, something very practical. 
Maybe the most common idol in suburban America is the idol of money. So what does it look like to actually worship money? Well, it looks like responding to money for what it is, what it's done, what it's doing, and what it could do. Maybe you worship money for what it is, the means to societal advancement. Maybe you think that it'll bring you some slice of freedom or that it'll change your current circumstances, give you more comfort or more security, that that's what money is. It's the means to those things. Maybe you worship money for what it's done. It's possible that the lack of money has plunged you into debt. And so you worship the fact that it could get you out. Maybe you look at money as the thing that's bought you a nice house or cars or paid for your college. It enabled you and your family to live where you do and to enjoy the lifestyle that you do. Maybe you think about money in terms of what it's doing right now, sustaining your family, providing food, creating opportunities for entertainment. Or you think about money in terms of what it could do. This is where I think most in suburban America fall. What if I just had a little bit more of it? Then think about what my money could do for me. It could secure my retirement. It could pay for my children's education. It could get us a bigger house or nicer cars or more vacations and more entertainment. It's not hard to get into a routine where we quite literally worship money, that everything that we do is in response to it, that everything that we do is in an effort to get more of it or save more of it or spend more of it. It's not hard to fall into a lifestyle where worship becomes an idol or where money becomes an idol that we worship. And you can do this with other things too. You can do it with a spouse or a job or an image of family. You can do it with the idea of success or the idea of love or sex. You can do it with the allure of position or popularity. You can do it with a resume or a college application. So really the foundational question this morning and of our entire series over the course of the summer is what do you worship? Because until you answer the question of what, the how doesn't really matter. We've talked a lot about the how. We've talked a lot about how do we worship God in the midst of various seasons and stations in life. But what if the thing that you're looking to worship isn't God? Well, we've got to attack the foundation. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Maybe the most important thing you'll take away, not just from today's message, but from the entirety of our series here over the summer, is landing on an answer of what do I worship. And so to help you in thinking through that, here are some questions that I'll encourage you to give some thoughtful consideration to. The first is this. What dominates your thought life? When you wake up at 2 in the morning, what's the thing that's running through your mind? That keeps you awake? What motivates your daily actions? What is it that drives you out of bed in the morning, pushes you out the door to the various things you do throughout the day, influences the way you interact with people? What makes you feel significant? What ultimately makes you feel safe and secure? These last two, I think, are the most poignant. What is the one thing that if you lost it would devastate you? I don't mean would make you momentarily sad. I mean, what's the one thing that if you lost it would cause you to look around and think to yourself, I'm not sure life's worth living anymore. On the flip side of that, what's the one thing that if you had it would totally enliven you? What's the one thing that you think about, if I had this particular thing, now life would really be worth living? 
The church answer to all of those questions would be Jesus. If we were back in Sunday school and the teacher asked these questions, you would say Jesus and you would get an extra cup of goldfish or something. We don't serve those anymore, actually. You'd get extra rice checks or whatever it is that we serve now. Fruit Loops. That's right. It's Fruit Loops. That's all the boxes. But the real-life answer to those questions are different. At times, and in various places in our lives, you could answer those questions with something other than Jesus if you're being totally honest with yourself. Those answers would point to a heart that seeks to worship something other than the Lord. The foundation of a life of Christ-centered worship is replacing the idol in your heart with a longing for the God who created you. Here's the bottom line reality. The only thing able to withstand the weight of your worship is the God who created you with a heart that longs to worship. When you place your worship on anything else, there are only two options. You will either crush that thing or that thing will crush you. Those are the two options. Let's play that out. You put all of your hope and all of your expectations and all of your worship upon a spouse. And that becomes heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier for your husband or your wife. And eventually, what do you do to them? You crush them with the weight of that. They cannot possibly sustain it. They can't bear the weight of that. And as you slowly break down your spouse with the weight of your worship, in turn, you're also crushing yourself because they just repeatedly don't live up to what it is that you want them to do. Money cannot give itself to you in an unending fashion. Your spouse can't provide you with the perfect love that you're seeking. Your career is one wrong move away from being ruined. Your reputation is one bad decision away from being forever tainted. Love is one person away from being scorned or tarnished. Your college application is one poor grade away from ultimately betraying you. Success is one more talented woman or man away from leaving you forever. And when those things fail you, they leave you discouraged, dispirited, disillusioned, dejected, and depressed. They cannot bear the weight of your worship. They can't do it. The only thing able to withstand the weight of your worship is the Lord. This is the way Tim Keller says it in his book, Forgotten God. He says, our counterfeit gods, excuse me. He says, the living God who revealed himself both at Mount Sinai and on the cross is the only Lord who, if you find him, will truly fulfill you. And if you fail him, can truly forgive you. He's the only one who can bear the weight of your worship. What Psalm 1 does for us is it gives us a picture of what it looks like to get that worship in the right spot. And so we're going to work our way through this over the next few minutes. If you've got your Bible, you can look at Psalm 1. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaves, or its leaf does not wither, and all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here's where we're headed this morning. The foundation of a lifestyle of Christ-centered worship is a heart that longs for Jesus. 
The context of Psalm 1 is that it is the introduction to the entire Psalter. There's a little bit of debate about who the author of Psalm 1 is. Some say that David wrote Psalm 1. Others say that the curator of the book of Psalms found 149 of them and pulled them together and then wrote Psalm 1 as an introduction. What we know for certain is that Psalm 1 lays, a, lays kind of a, a groundwork, a base, if you will, for the rest of the book of Psalms. It provides a picture that there are two options for eternal reality. That there's the way of the righteous and there's the way of the wicked, and those end in two different places. If you remember back to our series from the Sermon on the Mount, that should sound familiar. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus offers four word pictures of the exact same truth. He says that there are two paths, wide and narrow. He says that there are two different kind of trees, one that bears fruit and one that doesn't and gets cut down and thrown into the fire. He says that there are two professions on judgment day, one that's true and and then another that causes the Lord to say, away from me, I never knew you. He says that there are two houses built on two different foundations, a foundation of sand and a foundation of rock house that's ultimately going to fall and one that's ultimately going to stand. That whole series of images is an extension of what we see in Psalm chapter 1. What we're going to do is work our way backwards through this psalm. We're going to look at verses 5 and 6, then 3 and 4, then finally verses 1 and 2. And what we're going to see is that there's an end in mind, there's an evidence of where a person is, is headed, and there's a foundation that leads a person to that place. The foundation is what matters. Here we go. Verses 5 and 6. It says this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. When it says the wicked will not stand, it's literally talking about making an argument, like before a judge, if you will. That there is a moment of judgment coming for all of humanity, and when that moment arrives, those who are, are marked by wickedness simply will not be able to stand. They won't be able to make a defense in that moment. They will just... They'll literally fall to their knees, if you will, and be cast out of the Lord's presence. How do you know they're cast out of the Lord's presence, Tim? Well, because the next phrase tells us, they will not be in the congregation of the righteous. All throughout the New Testament, uh, particularly in the Gospels, we're given this picture of a judgment day coming where the sheep are separated from the goats, the wheat from the chaff, the righteous from the unrighteous. And those who are marked by wickedness will not be able to stand in the congregation of the righteous who spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. They won't be able to do it. They won't stand. Well, why won't they stand? Well, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous and He knows the way of the wicked and that the wicked will perish. That's what verse 6 tells us. When the Bible talks about the way of, it's talking about the motivation of, the heart of, the life of, the Lord knows He knows the heart of every individual, and there's absolutely no hiding it. That's the important part of verse 6. The Lord knows it. We can't cover it up. At times, it's easy for people, I think particularly in suburban kind of American culture, to play church, if you will, to show up and say the right things, use the right language, do enough positive behaviors that I look Christian enough as if that's somehow going to fool the Lord on the day of judgment. Psalm 1 says, absolutely not, because the Lord knows the way of the righteous and He knows the way of the wicked. He knows at a base level exactly who is who, and He's going to separate based on that. That's the end that Psalm 1 has in mind. Verses 5 and 6. If you back up to verses 3 and 4, we get a picture of the evidence of who's headed toward what end. And it's all about this 
metaphor of a righteous person in a tree. We're told that he, the righteous one, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Like a tree planted by streams of water. In the region that the Israelites lived in, water was hard to come by. It would, there'd be a season where it was rainy and things would flood and then it would go back to being dry and arid. And so what they would do in order to grow anything is that they would cut channels of irrigation. And wherever that water went, you'd be able to plant next to it and along it and things would spring up. The psalmist says the righteous person is like a tree planted by one of those irrigation streams of water. It never dies. It grows fruit in season when you would expect it to, and its leaf never withers. There are no periods of deadness. That's the righteous person planted next to a stream of literal living water from the Lord. No seasons of deadness. No matter what life might throw at you that we've looked at all throughout the Psalms, there is no season of deadness because there's always water available. You bear fruit when you're supposed to, and the leaves are always green. I want to make a real quick note as well about the phrase, in all that he does, he prospers. Don't get fixated on the word prosper. The Bible makes no claim that those who follow God are going to be wealthy or have an abundance of money or possessions. It's talking about an assurance of God's blessing. That may play itself out in this life. It may play itself out in eternity. But the truth of the matter is that a believer, a righteous person, has hope in the assurance of God's blessing. Hope in the assurance of God's blessing. Verse 4, in contrast, talks about the wicked. And it's almost dismissive. Here's this incredible description of what a righteous person looks like. A tree planted by streams of water with fruit and green leaves that never wither. And then the wicked are not so. This is like he kind of writes them off. They're like chaff. That's easily blown away. We've talked about chaff before. It's the useless part of wheat. So when a farmer would harvest, they would bring all of their wheat into one area and they would use a winnowing fork and throw it up into the air and the wind would blow the chaff away because it's very light and the uh, useful kernel of the wheat would fall back to the ground. In the moment of judgment, the psalmist says, that's what the wicked person's like. Nothing to anchor it back to the ground. That it's just going to be blown away without any trouble. Like chaff. Useless. How do we get to that place? If there are two options in eternity and there's this evidence that uh, points to which one a person's headed toward, what is the foundation of that? Well, that's what verses 1 and 2 are all about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delaws in the light of the Lord, or in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. That phrase, blessed is the man, that should be familiar from Sermon on the Mount as well. That's how Jesus starts the Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man who, fill in the blank. And he repeats that over and over and over again. It's actually the exact same word construction. Blessed. It means happy, but not like happy in a momentary, temporary sense. Happy in an eternal kind of soul-resting sort of sense. Eternally happy, the psalmist says, is the person who does not 
walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Don't get bogged down on the word law either. It doesn't mean that you need to walk around thinking about all the things the Bible commands you to do. That would get overwhelming. When the Old Testament talks about the law, it's talking about the totality of Scripture that they had available at the time. The totality of the story of who God is. The totality, what we know of the Old Testament, of pointing humanity to their need for a Savior. Blessed is the man who delights in that rather than in wickedness, than in sin, than in scoffing at the truth of who God is and what the gospel is. That's the foundation. The blessed is the one who's got a heart that delights in the truth of God, that delights in the truth of the gospel. That leads to a life that looks like a tree planted by water, and that leads to an eternity in the congregation of the righteous, says the psalmist. The foundation is a heart that finds its delight in the truth of who God is and the reality of the gospel. A life of Christ-filled worship is founded on that kind of heart. The foundation of a lifestyle of Christ-centered worship is built on a heart that longs for Jesus. What does that mean, Tim? Well, it means this, that you go through a season of life of poignant disappointment and your heart cries out one thing, Give me Jesus, not give me the thing that's left me disappointed. It means that you go through a time of particular success and your heart cries out one thing, give me Jesus, not give me more of the thing that's granting me success. It means that you go through a time in life where you feel uncertainty about the future and you cry out in your heart, give me Jesus, not make my future certain. It means that you go through a time in life where you're feeling particularly joyful. You cry out, give me Jesus. You go through a time in life where you're feeling maybe a little bit sad. Your heart cries out, give me Jesus. That's what that looks like. How do we get there, Tim? That sounds all well and good, but that sounds like the church answer I'm supposed to give for an extra cup of Fruit Loops. How do I actually get there? I want to offer you a reason why you can fully stake your life and your hope and your identity and your worship on God. He is the only one who can bear the weight of your worship and he proved it at the cross. You see, whereas every other thing that you could put in your heart as your object of worship will ultimately fail you in your greatest moment of need, that being the need to be made righteous before a holy God, Jesus did not fail you, he came for you on the cross. He did not fail you. He provided a means of salvation for you in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. Whereas everything else that you could possibly worship will ultimately fail you, God has not failed you. He provided Christ for you. And it's because of that that we can stake all of our worship upon him and know that it's not going to crush him, and know that it's not going to crush us. In fact, we can stake our worship upon him and know that in the moment of judgment, it's going to be that and that alone that actually enables us to stand. Covered by the righteousness of Christ, marked for eternity in the congregation of the righteous. The foundation of a lifestyle of Christ-centered worship is a heart that longs for Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. We're going to finish with 
uh, one more song together here this morning. Here's the, the song we're going to end with is called Build Your Kingdom. We've, we sing it here rather frequently. It's by Rend Collective. There are some words out here on our wall that you pass by every Sunday morning and maybe, maybe never stop to read. And it says that we exist at LCF to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Part of that, actually all of that, means that we exist here at Liberty Christian Fellowship to build people whose lives and hearts long to worship. Not just gather together on Sunday mornings and sing, but to live live lifestyles of worship in all circumstances and in all situations. John Piper says that missions exists because worship doesn't. You could extend that to say that evangelism has to exist because worship doesn't. We're convinced as a staff, uh, Brian is our worship pastor, we're convinced that if we would lead lives of worship all the time in the church, outside the church, every situation in life, then building devoted followers of Jesus for those who don't know him would become simple because it would be a compelling, beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow Christ and to be saved by him through faith in his work on the cross. That's why we spent the summer in the book of Psalms. What does it look like to worship God? Well, first and foremost, is that what you worship? Then let's talk about what it looks like in various seasons of life. Stand up. Let's sing together. Uh, When we're finished, you're free to go. We're going to launch a new series next week that we're really uh, excited about. Let's sing together.